So, Steve, welcome to Dark Mode. So can you find anything else to introduce Dark Mode around? So, so beautiful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, Steve <laughs> Cornette 2.0 with yourself. So thank you again for joining us on Dark Mode. Um, no worries. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and it's, um, well, we get to do version two and do it bigger and better and, um, and have a lot more fun. Absolutely. Yeah, well, we're joking offline just before hitting record that we had all sorts of wonderful, weird questions about the future of ChatGPT4 when we first mm -hmm. recorded. And in the space of maybe six weeks since we did convene last time, I feel like the whole world's changed. Right. Had... Go, go on, Ben. I was going to say, has it broken or has it been re... I'm confused <laughs> as to where we're at right now. <laughs> well, is it broken? I don't know that it's broken. I think we know. So the question, one of the questions we had when we chatted earlier this year, guys, was, you know, when we get chatting GDP4, is it going to be that much different? You know, do we see this trajectory that's so much more scary than we were in February? We're recording now, but is it mid-April? Mid and I think we first chatted early Feb or something like that, you know? Yeah. And so I like to look at the exponential growth of things and, and, and try and look for signals and things you can find, you know? And, and I think we're sort of asking ourselves, are we scared now in February? And when this GTP4 comes out, are we even more scared, you know, with I don't know. I'm not so sure I am more scared. I might bring it as <laughs> you two. Where, where are you going? Well, I tend to stay away from the fear mongering side of things. I'm a mindless optimist. And Steve, as you mentioned, like absolutely a big proponent of Moore's law as well. So the exponential effect of that. But I think nothing more than really the first user interface we've seen with ChatGPT has really exploded. And yeah, I'm very excited about where technology innovation is taking us at the moment. What are your thoughts, Ben? I, I kind of agree the being the mindless optimist I am. However, I, when I said, oh, is it broken or not? I'm just referring to open letters by Elon Musk about stopping the continuation of AI experiments. And then you've got GPT-4, which is just going absolutely gangbusters. And you've got like sites that we used to prep episodes on notion who created AI. Like, I just love that it's there at the moment, but I'm so confused with the both sides of my brain going, do we stop the experiment? Do we just go full hard at the experiment? So I think it's an exciting time. We're 29% of the way through 2023, which is a wild statistic to think of. And I think when we filmed last time, we were about 18% of the way through. So in that 11% that's gone, so much has changed. I'm excited to see what happens in the next 11%. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, even when we caught up the first time, I mean, our conversation was very much around tech innovation, even data governance. We'd love to explore your role in the world of, of cloud and, mm. and the startup recently that you've jumped into, but even things like decarbonization. And mm. I love saying this, but the microcosm of future digital societies. To mm. me, there's an episode <laughs> in each of those areas. So yeah. where, where shall we start, Steve? What do you reckon? Well, let's... Should we start with the last bit? Where does that term come from? Um, I, I kind of see it as, so my background in the last uh, 12 years, was it? I can't remember. It was, um, has been in, in the university sector. And I'm very, very fortunate to have this sort of really tech background that comes. I ended up at the university with the job of building the right clouds and computers and governance, data governance for thousands of researchers and trying to build this environment where they can win and where that win is for them to move fastest, to move quicker and have more, but 
you know, if you're, um, if you're doing medical research and those sorts of things, you can't do all those things without being also safe first, you know, all those sorts of things, you know, um, no one wants to trust a university, which has a bad brand around, you know, getting patient data around and that sort of stuff. Right. And so universities end up being this really interesting place. And I'm seeing it in other industries. We could talk about that where the individual researchers are quite free to choose their own technologies and go off and do their own experiments. And it's not like the center enterprise thing is the architect of their technologies. Now they, they do meld and merge and whatever, but there's like a thousand individual businesses inside each university and you're trying to prop them up so they can be, you know, use technology, use that Moore's law to their advantage win. Right. Um, and so people want to try and get a picture of that and get some numbers. I always refer everyone to research.monash.edu. You can go check that out. I think we have the link in the show notes. And at the top, there's a banner that says there's approximately 5,000 researchers, 20,000 projects or grants, and collectively that reaches 50,000 people around the world if you look at that map, right? Um, and so it, it is this microcosm of this society where things are very connected everyone's quite liberal and able to use technology as they need to to do their job and the performance managed to do that we want researchers that win you know um and uh and that's why we end up with this sort of you know i think a sense of this microcosm of what the rest of the world is starting to see and feel for themselves just while i'm on that the other place i see that is people who do the trading for, for superannuation funds, people who are doing the trading on the, on the energy markets and things like that. Once again, you get these people who are bringing in lots of little pieces of data. They need to assign it to some sort of personal data. You might say in your superannuation thing profile that you want to be really risky or something. You choose those options. They kind of need to know what's going on a little bit. Uh, but yet their performance managed to go and make the most of the money or whatever else, right? So you do see these sorts of patterns appear in other places, but yeah, that, that's sort of, that, that, that's where the idea kind of comes from. Nice. Do you think that there's another mega trend in that, Steve? I like to talk a lot about sort of the downfall of hierarchies and the uprising of almost this self-organized nodal structure. And it's almost a sense where you think about microcosms. We could go on a huge rabbit hole here in terms of data gravity. <laughs> I know data gravity is the latest buzzword that Ben's absolutely yep. just hovering around at the moment. But you talk yep. about, you know, how do you be your own technologist? How do you equip people to move fast and win? Right. And I feel like that's really just the fabric of society at the moment. And there's a lot of legacy or old institutions or old ways of doing things, status quo, that are at all sorts of different array of paces getting disrupted and moving towards yeah. the future realm. Low. <laughs> ben, ben says, oh, yeah. not the hierarchy, it's the low-rarchy. That's a good, uh, tell us you're a dad without telling us you're a dad, Ben. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be joining in, shouldn't I? Um, look, I, uh, I, think, I think, Gabe, the, the thing that stopped this from happening before is has got to do with the amount of, and this comes back to the decarbonisation and everything else, right? is the amount of computing resource we have and that we do spend on cybersecurity. I think that that's kind of mm. the big thing that's changing. So oversimplify the world. And it's an easy way of saying this. An enterprise in the last, you know, 10 years ago, let's just sort of put some, let's not be comp you know, confrontation. Let's go back in the past. We're a bit older and slower at these things five years ago. Um, we would put a firewall 
in front of the enterprise and you sort of the, the idea that you put this big ring fence around things. Yeah. Now, uh, and then what we do is we apply really, you know, our best practice of policies and things around that firewall. So it's a, it's a policy, it's a technology, there's culture around it. And there are people like NVIDIA come up and there's a lot of evidence and we did some of these experiments in Monash as well. And we could see that sort of about 30% of the data center is being spent on doing the job of being a data center, including the cybersecurity bits, right? And it sort of begs you, what's starting to happen is instead of being limited by this one, one or two sort of RU, one computer unit at the top of your enterprise's data center, and all the work that can be done is only done on those things, you're limited in the amount of work you can do, and hence you just firewall, right? Once you start pushing that computing out, you get to the same size of the amount of computing that you do everywhere, including on your own little phone out here, right? The world changes and hey, you have to think about, well, actually what you try and do is you try and take all those good practices you did to the enterprise and you do it on you, Gabe, and on the work that you're doing and you, Ben, the work that you're doing, right? Because you can, you actually got the resources to do that, right? Um, and so what's happening is with both the compute that is being made available for cybersecurity and data centers. And I talk a lot about DPUs and that's the sort of heritage I have and uh, exposure I've had to those technologies coming through. What you also get is the ability to do AI and other things quite advanced because you can push a lot more compute work out to those places and at a much finer grain and it comes back to the sort of enterprise scale and it asks the governance of the, of the organization to start saying, hey, we need actually to have multiple risk appetites. I'm not treating my financial data the same as those researchers if I go back to university. Um, you know, I'm not saying every research is free with everything else, but you need to be able to go and have some granularity around what you do. So I think that's my complicated answer to Greg, to your confrontational question about the wind up. And, and, and control, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. No, it's a very, it's a very interesting, I'm going to say it again. I said this on another episode. I think Ben fell off his chair, but it's an, it's a very interesting zeitgeist at the moment. <laughs> Just like it's the zeitgeist. feeling. <laughs> just the zeitgeist of the times like where what's happening the undercurrent of that sort of consciousness around you know that you just mentioned then Steve the different risk profiles even Ben and I have spoken about you know calling out some of the cloud service providers or Snowflake becoming the next tier one cybersecurity company because they have the data there and then they're going to look to safeguard around those pockets gravitational pull of data mm -hmm. to govern and build those risk profiles around different functional areas for the enterprise. So I just find that really interesting. Do you, you think so, Ben? Like a, you know, I wonder if they will create those risk profiles in govern, kind of feel like they'll create the risk profiles and then look for someone else to govern. But it's an interesting space to think about uh, because there needs to be some sort of governance around it. But yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I think Snowflake uh, is well positioned in that space for sure. Yeah. No snowflake. You can tell me about it. The different else, I guess, for that matter. What makes snowflake difference? What's the. Well, I mean, they're sort of the rise of the data cloud, they call themselves, but just very similar to like data warehousing and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. I see. Look, I, you know, it's interesting because that's a very like explicit, you have to decide to use them. Um, and, 
you know, maybe coming back to the chat GDP thing, one of the big concerns I think we all have, and if you have a look at what's happened with Samsung in the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've seen that announcement where really simply put employees in using chat GDP are putting corporate information through and you can see that the other end, right? It's your corporate information is getting trapped in the big AI engine that's out there, um, whether you, uh, just by using it, you know, um, I, yeah, I think there is a, it also comes down to, I did a, I was involved with a data governance, um, uh, I don't know, board committee, something at Monash Health, which is in Australia, actually the largest by, um, uh, number of patients, a hospital in Australia. Um, and, um, some of the concerns that people were expressing were, well, we've got all these clinicians and they're coming up with all of the whiz bang tools that their own disease state is dealing with the hospital. They've got, um, their own, their own hospital is talking to all these little startups all the time. Like there's an endless list of new startups with their own little book, um, HubSpot or Snowflake or whatever, right? you know, uh, it, it, it very much is a, a cultural thing because if you say no and don't do anything, you don't innovate at all, like you get to zero. And if you say you don't do anything at all, you're going to end up in that, say, that Samsung position or something, you know, where, um, you know, it's not too dissimilar to the Optus and all those other things we've been talking about before, where they end up being kind of cultural things. How do you actually ensure that? The innovation can continue in a safe way when when uh, you need to allow people to also have some freedom to do some stuff. Great points. <laughs> great points. The first one you raised, uh, Steve, was that you have to use the technology. That's another great point that, that I sort of didn't even consider there. So kudos to you for being the researcher in the room. Uh, and, <laughs> and second to that is, um, I just want to, speaking of that, talk about Snowflake potentially creating the risk profiles, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're well positioned to do that. There's other vendors that will help that surge and the innovation into those risk profiles like AWS. They're probably quivering that we've called our snowflake as possibly being the leader in that field. But uh, it comes back to, you know, McAfee, John McAfee, who created McAfee. We all know McAfee. It's a household brand now, not McAfee. I just said McAfee, not McAfee. That was a faux pas. But McAfee, they were the first commercial antivirus tools that was in the, in the competitive landscape. And they therefore created the risk profiles that have and still govern what we do now as, as antivirus software. So I feel like that where we are now with that landscape, especially in the data governance landscape, there's risk profiles being created and the allowance of innovation they have is quite unique in that they're new to the field, the field's new. So therefore the guardrails haven't started to come in close enough to be able to reduce that innovation. Do you agree with that, Steve? I definitely agree. I think one of the really, how many conversations have you had in the last three months where the data governance and cybersecurity groups are, are being forced to come together within organizations? Have you been hearing that? I mean, I've been hearing that. And I think that's the little sense of maturity that needs to recur where maybe the cybersecurity people who are used to technologies and tools and the very, you know, sort of square boxed and thinking about things. Um, and then you the governance people who sometimes might be a bit more rounded, you know, in, in the way they think that they look at the world differently and what they think is the risk and, and all what it is you're trying to protect. And uh, they don't speak the same language necessarily. And I've seen a few groups go through this journey of trying to get to a better answer by, 
you know, trying to understand the two languages and get those two two bits coming together. But I do like, um, I guess I didn't clue on to straight away that that particular point about the tool that you used, your staff are using, it's providing the safety and guardrails and advice for you. So instead of asking the staff member to come up with a plan for how you keep the data safe and protected, wouldn't it be great if actually the tools actually gave you all that metadata so you it was doing it for you? So it's the other way around, making the life easy for people, right? Then you're making it easy for people to adopt it for these things to scale out. You're not asking someone to become an expert in cybersecurity or data protection and all the other things that they need to do. You're making it easy for themselves, for them. So there is a lot of, I guess, a credit. I mean, like I said, I don't really know. It's no great thing, but I totally understand the approach if that's what it does. Yeah. Hmm. It's very interesting. See, was there a point there in terms of cybersecurity using up a lot of compute power and almost a trade-off from cybersecurity versus things like decarbonization? Yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, not even that, like, you know, going back to the chat GDP, um, uh, that there is a big shift that's happening in the industry at the moment that large language AI and the whole spectrum of generative AI is causing things. I'll, I'll come back to the cybersecurity bit in a tick, but um, if you have a look at the last 10 plus years, the thing that's made the AWS GCP as your business model is the fact that, um, we have gotten really good and we've commercialized virtualization. So if, if you look back, um, and it's a really interesting plot you can do, you can go and plot us energy production, which is flatlined over the last 10 years. And, um, uh, and you can look at the amount that the, 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 the technologies that computer centers have used of electricity out of the U S envelope, right? It's remained the same. It's not changed. Right. Um, yet there's been in the order of 500 to 600 times more computers provided to people, right? And that's happened because of virtualization, virtualizing, put stuff on the cloud or using VMs. And then we got down to micro segment, micro services, you know, little, little, little things, right? So we've just gotten really good at been packing lots and lots of generic IT work. And so for the last 10 to 15 years, we've had something like, um, zero growth in the amount of electricity that the computing fraternity have you. The difference is AI in the sense that, you know, uh, ChatGDP is this sort of large language model and those sorts of things. They require you as the individual to use lots of computers. It's more like high performance computing that you hear that researchers and stuff do, right? Um, and so the big fear and the big concern is the amount of energy and the amount of say carbon that we're about to go through as, um, as we try to create chat GDPs and other things like that, that is sovereign and safe protects data. Yeah. Whether it is that you're doing it for your own nation, because you know, you don't trust the West or the East, whatever you, that, that, you know, that doesn't actually matter. You're, you don't want to be in that Samsung position. Your organization will end up wanting to use natural language in an autonomous way, right? You know, all those things that we can see is the great things we could do with chat GDP. And to do that, you'll have to include your own uh, proprietary information. And at some point you will go off and say, Hey, I need a, a separate copy to do that. I can't trust it to be in the shared space. We start saying the tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars it takes to do that chat GDP model built model run, right? Needs to be repeated, you know, and obviously the cost is going to come down. Right? 
So there's this really big concern and opportunity around making decarbonizing computing. So one of the startups I've been working with is, um, you know, their, na their name is Firmus and they do this really revolutionary immersion technology. So this water is, it's a computer's racks that are in oil, basically, right? Non-poisonous oil, like nice good green stuff. And, and that materially makes efficiency, like there's zero of quite zero, very close to zero amount of electricity spent cooling the data center. Whereas if you go to any normal data center, you're basically spending, you know, double the amount of energy cooling the place because you're trying to cool air that goes and touches a hot computer and it gets pumped out, you know, and there's all this complicated machinery and that sort of stuff. So there are these technologies coming about, which are really important if we're going to do all this work on AI and deal with this fact that, well, we are going to do a lot more cybersecurity work, computing work, whether it's AI-based or whether it's McAfee old school, you know, um, if statement basic, if you like, non-AI predating AI or, or whatever it might be, there's a lot more work that's going on and that will take a lot more, will tax the system. Like we're saying, it's probably about 30% when you include the operating system that is the cloud itself, whether it's OpenStack or Azure or whatever it is, together with the cybersecurity. There's a fair bit there. We need to get that to be close to zero as possible. And right. at some point, you know, at some point, and this is the thing that some companies need to think about is, well, when does society say to you, well, I don't know that you should be spending that much money, that much carbon in your own chat GDP for, you know, some purpose. So all you've done is made it so I can order my Uber faster or something. Is that really a good place to spend our carbon, you know? But similarly, yeah. is that a good for us to spend us for security? It's a good question. I don't know. I just love that one of the current solutions is putting computer racks into oil. Nothing like data is the new oil. <laughs> Deep fried data yeah. chips. I love that. That's something else. Yeah. Hey, Steve, but, that's, that's an, oh, sorry, Gabe, you got. No, go on. I, I've got to move away from data oil chips. Um, does that take us into the, because I feel like that is, that's one of my, I love yeah. reading the research that you did with Monash University on this piece. Um, essentially, and correct if I'm wrong here, but it's to develop and demonstrate a seamless microgrid energy transaction space. Um, does, does that feed into this conversation? And is that one way that we could potentially alleviate some of this stress and, de and the carbonization? It, it doesn't alleviate the stress. Um, to the big picture, um, I said there's a startup also here in Melbourne that's called Recruit. And like all these sort of startups, they pivot around a bit till they find that product market fit and they go, you know, they go bang, right? Um, and the biggest story that these guys fit into, which is a real game end of the story, is imagine a world where, so at the moment, we all get our electricity from a supplier. You know, we can pick up any name we like. And I guess AGL is national, so we'll just go with AGL, a big player. Um, and they determine everything. But imagine a world where instead of uh, you and I, Ben, we could decide that we would share our electricity bill. And what that means is, you know, we will decide as a group um, that we'll go cold so we can not spend money when the electricity is expensive and all those bits and pieces. Or we've also got our batteries and our own solar. So we're selling it when we want. And, you know, so we take the pain being quite like a prosumer, prosumer that we're both contributing, saving and consuming electricity on the grid. And that we come in self-organized groups to do that. And that could be hierarchical, right? Like imagine Maybe it's two people on the street and it becomes a whole suburb or it's your whole family and there's a, some sort of a big group that, you know, that, that participates in that way. 
So to do that, you end up in this world of um, distributed ledgers or blockchain type stuff. And that's what the that particular Red Grider activity was about. It was a bit of a seeding of how do we start doing that? How do we have autonomous entities trade in a way where you don't have to trust the one bank or the one ledger? You know, you've got this distributed ledger and it's fair and equitable and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, where I think that's really useful probably going like in a tangible sense going forwards is um, imagine you're a place that is a data center or you are, you know, you've got lots of computers and you use Firmus and you get to hundred percent efficiency or very close to that. Right. Um, and then you say, but I've actually got a net zero commitment and I actually want to have zero carbon, not the hundred percent for being burnt using the, doing the AI or whatever. I actually want to get to hundred percent. Well, what you might do is you could propagate the responsibility of being at net zero, you know, so at the moment you can get these clean energy players on, on the, you know, you can buy from there, but you get no proof that the, that, 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 that electron actually comes from a green place, right? But you could for a digital certificate, if you like, through a through blockchain or whatever, for a digital ledger, push that responsibility down to someone and actually show, actually, I did the right thing. And if my supplier is doing the wrong thing, well, I can change suppliers, but I could prove it wasn't me, right? So I think it's a place for that sort of stuff. I think it's really interesting. It allows for these really interesting plays and thinking about uh, how we uh, propagate the responsibilities and risks. And it works for decarbonization here, but it could work for anything. Right? I love the, I love any sort of mention about prosumerism after diving into a few of Alvin Toffler's books back in the seventies. And he just like completely predicted the fabric of reality today. It's amazing. <laughs> prosumerism is very interesting. I had a I had a shout for you though, Steve, and I'd love to segue this into probably the more interesting topic that I'm rabbit holing at the moment, which is not ChatGPT or cyber or AI. So hold on to your seats here, folks. <laughs> but could the solution for decarbonization be around quantum computing? And I'd be keen to hear your thoughts around generalized versus specialized chips, what the rise of or what the next innovation for hardware needs to be how we store the information flows, because at the moment, if I explain it in really simple terms, I understand that transistors are controlling the information flow through, you know, the ones and zeros, the, the bits on the actual hardware chip itself. But quantum computing in its essence is how can that information be simultaneously both on and off at the same time, which is the supercomposition theory for quantum mm -hmm. physics and every time I mention any of those things people just go so blank at me and I'm like can we start <laughs> talking about this because like surely we all need to like start rabbit rabbit holing what this is because that just seems like in theory and if I just lastly I'm really keen for both of your responses because Ben's just gone off in the chat and on the <laughs> side here but it's just like <laughs> when I'm actually I'm reading the fabric of reality at the moment and it talks about quantum and the more I think about it and learn about it and have these conversations with people like you, Steve, and bounce ideas off Ben and get his feedback and everything in between. I had a conversation about it at lunch last week and again, blank faces, but it's just like, I mean, in theory, that sounds very feasible, but even just the essence of scientific theory and the explanation of what quantum is, is still to be determined. So I appreciate where that's still very nascent. But again, fundamentally to me, it makes sense that things like decarbonization can be solved for through 
having that specialization and just the pure nature of the computing technologies. What do, what do you guys think? Ben, firstly, if I can just get your reaction this live on screen. I just wrote in the chat, I was like, my hat just blew off with this knowledge bomb. Talking about, Gabe talking about transistors. It's just, this is it's a big moment. Yeah, well, we can go into Taiwan in a second, but anyways. It's just, yeah. What do you think, Steve? Is that, we're on the right track here, surely. I, I think, no, you're on the right, definitely on the right sort of track. And I say track is, no, 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 because <laughs> I, I think, like you said, like, it, it's hard to know exactly where it's going to land and what's going to be the killer app, right? It, that we all remember, what's the killer app? What's the thing that's going to, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at, at uh, quantum computing. I probably ought to be and whatnot, but I, I tend to have a way I think about it, which is a bit more problem. Like where would you use it centric and, and that sort of thing. So the, it, there is a way, okay. So, you know, if you're trying to find, if you've got a little graph and unfortunately for those that's this thing, just think of the little U-shaped thing, you know, that's, and you can you ask the question, what's the minimum? You, we know that they use algorithms and we can use that eye and find the bottom of that U-shape, right? You know, kind of go and say, yeah, I know what the minimum is. I can go and find that. Yeah. And the thing that quantum computing helps us with is instead of having an algorithm that has to march down the slope and kind of do these jumps and, you know, they, oh, I can get to this bottom of it, is imagine a U-shape where the bottom is a bunch of little hills and you just can't tell which one is the most bottom. In fact, it's a bit like when you think of a valley and it's full of lakes and you kind of go and say, well, where's the bottom of the, where's the bottom of the valley? Well, actually it might just be the level of the lakes. Might, you know, you don't really care about the bottom of the valley anymore. So you just, you, you, you make a line across you say everything beneath that is the right answer, right? Um, and that's a good way of thinking about how do you end up with this? It's both yes and no at the same time. Well, that's kind of what they need. You have to ask the question a slightly different way. So saying I want the absolute bottom, which all those little humps might, you know, basically be the same number. What you do is you ask the question slightly differently and you say, well, I'm actually interested in everything that's below this lake line. And everything below is the winner. That's the right answer. And you get a bit of an ensemble or something like that. And so if for problems where you're trying to calculate that in one step, instead of this algorithm that goes slowly, that's where quantum really works. You have to think of a different problem. And you're exactly right. Like it's it's not going to help with Excel or Word or, Word or, or, or Google Docs or whatever it is you for your text, you know, and you're just the text writing with the typewriter sense out of the application. Um, leaving this chat TDP future advancement out, you know, just that bit. It's not going to help because that, that needs your general computer and all that sort of stuff, right? But if it's trying to find Ben's ultimate bike path to work, I don't know if uh, you play golf, actually, I know that you play golf, your <laughs> golf uh, shot choice, right? It's something like that. Then you, you could see having a processor that is a quantum thing would do that one step really really quickly you know and we'll find places that's really really valuable and obviously do a lot less work use a lot less carbon there we go yeah okay, i've got some for you on quantum computing this has been a rabbit hole of mine which is not quite in the same parallel but i think it adds value to to steve's points here if you look back at the last 10 years of computing we started with two, we've ended up with four, five, 10 qubit systems, which is processing power essentially. They're the, what we are at the moment with quantum computing, so Google has 
staked claim. They put their flag on the moon of quantum computing to say that they've got it and they're running with it, which they've got a pretty unique supercomputer in there, a quantum computer. They're in the vicinity of 100 aiming for 1,000 qubits. So it's evolving. It's picking up quite quickly. But we need error-corrected, fault-tolerant quantum computing for it to be valuable to the problems that we're looking to solve currently. Now, to do that, we're looking at orders of magnitude, which needs to be around a million qubits to realize the potential of quantum computing. With the amount of noise on the, the current quantum computers or supercomputers, we're achieving about 50 gates, and that's equal to or on parallel with some of the world's class computers that we have today. So to achieve that, we need about a billion gates. So we've got or a billion quantum gates in, you know, in that unique sentence. So in order to get the scale we need to help the decarbonization and the problems that we're looking to achieve with quantum computing, we've still got a way to go, but they're anticipating in the next 50 years, well, I think it'll be a lot sooner than that based on the evolution that we've had in technology in the last decade, that we will be able to achieve those gates and those qubits to achieve full quantum computing. So it's an interesting I, space. I yeah, Ben, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, I did have a quick look at that growth curve of qubits as they're big, and I'm pretty sure you Google it quite pretty quickly. And it is doubling or more every year or so. So, it, you know, you just have to then do the maths and work out how many years before we get to that yeah. one billion, whatever. And it's not that far away, I don't think. Again, so that's where, yeah, you're right. That's where it kind of has an error bar low enough that, you know, we'll trust it like it in a general sense. But there are other places where uh, the technology is being used that is not like as the computer, like it's used for error correction or something like that in, in networks and stuff. But there's all these other applications that we can use this kind of idea for where we don't need that ultimate tech accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might find quantum, you know, that word being used in some other products in a consumer basis before you see it as a computer one. I bought quantum deodorant the other day. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Did you do hang off with that? <laughs> it didn't help my game, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. But that's a, that's a massive rabbit hole for anyone listening. If people tend to ask Gabe and I what rabbit holes are into at the moment, that's one that I think that will forever be down. Is computing uh, where we are and what the problems we can solve with. There's a whole bunch of articles out there on how quantum computing can solve climate change. I think that's quite interesting with the way well, where we are currently with quantum computing. So there's some unique rabbit holes to go down with quantum computing, that's for sure. Guys, for still- Googling them. No, oh, yeah, I was like, I feel like we've just lost half the dark mode audience on that last quantum computing <laughs> rabbit hole. But yeah, anyways. Yeah, well, everyone wants to use computer on the computing, what the concern is obviously all the cryptography we lose overnight, right? If you thought your blockchain was secure or whatever it is, you know, that that's the... Again. Uh, yeah, think again. Yep. yep. Yeah. Well, Steve, what, how about what sort of digital projects are you working on at the moment? Anything interesting you want to share? You've just actually launched Innate Innovation. Yep. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So I got to this point of feeling that the cloud and government building stuff I've done over the last two decades really, you know, I wanted to be able to share more, more broadly. Um, uh, and so I've established my own, I guess, startup, and that's called Nate Innovation. And it's really pitched at helping organizations, whether you're selling a technology and hitting these complexities that we're talking about. Um, or you're an organization and you've got the same sort of researcher style, probably you've got this thing where you've got conflicting cultures and missions 
And that some people approach me because they're sort of saying, hey, um, we put this cybersecurity in, but we're now struggling to retain our talented staff who feel too restricted, right? And it's that kind of, I don't have to go on that far around before you go, hang on, it's a bit more complicated. Similarly, I've also been working with this future of cybersecurity type of stuff, or at least an angle of it that really looks at well, what happens when you can do a lot more work because of the DPUs, you know, at this, you know, on the computers or whatever else, and do things like that. One of the pilot things we were doing with NVIDIA and, and sort of demonstrated it publicly, kind of, sort of first. Um, uh, before I left Monash, was um, um, doing things like I could take your work, Gabe, and your, you know, your particular projects you're working on, whatever you're collaborating with, and automatically go and encrypt everything you do and have that encryption unique for that particular project, those sorts of things, right? Doing other things like you searching for patient names and those sorts of things autonomously in the background so that you don't have to change your code or your behaviors necessarily. We can get the, the fabric to do it because we know that sort of stuff. And so there's a lot of really interesting, we we're talking about the McCaffrey type stuff before, there's a lot of really interesting algorithms and things that you can do with a bit of AI that is bespoke to your organization. And I think, you know, obviously all the big, big players are doing things on these lines. I'm certainly almost seven, um, doing things on these lines. And so uh, a, a lot of what I've been working on recently has been helping to educate people that can do there's technology coming to place that lets you be a lot more sovereign um, around uh, the knowledge um, that you have around AI and cybersecurity and those bits and pieces. Yeah, I think we're talking about for like, you know, with a snowflake is, well, what happens when you give, you know, if you think of cybersecurity and all the tools that we've been talking about, they can pretty much see all your corporate information, clear text. And we have an agreement with a company and say whatever, but there are times and places where I think people will be thinking, well, Maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I should actually have a bit of knowledge about what we do and stuff like that. So I just think there'll be a lot more in the future. There'll be a lot more transparency of the little pieces. You know, you know, we started off with our laptops and our computers and our desktops, and now we have our phones. At some point, we got used to the idea that I can have a little road processor on here. I don't need the big phone thing. And I could do some small tasks. And I think there'll always be the big tools protecting a big thing. But then I think, that I think there's these special cases that that there, there might be some secret source that, you know, if, if you're Bloomberg, you know, no one can see their information. They don't want to give that because that's, that's so important to them, right? You cannot get into that. You know, they really protect that sort of stuff. They bring it, a lot of that stuff in-house so they can protect themselves and make sure their knowledge database is, doesn't go anywhere, right? And so I think there's a lot of places that are in a sim similar and yeah, they're the sort of things I've been working on. Nice. So like for the to... audience, can you just explain what Bluebird was? It, mainly for me. Bluebird. Maybe. Bloomberg, you know. Oh, Bloomberg. I think you said Bluebird. I was like, all right, okay, cool. <laughs> Steve, I like taking the excerpt out of the website for innate innovation. And you're, you were just referring there in terms of like purposefully resetting the internal culture and strengths and just really leveraging data and technology into the new age, really. So have you seen any common kind of transformations around that in, in the projects you've been doing with executives and the like? I think you mentioned before, me and my former partner in my last job, you know, um, had this way that we talk about people when we're interviewing, and I think it's always a good way of talking about it, which is, you know, whether they're 
around personal risk where Kirsten. And if you think of oh, yeah. if you think of research, right? It is dealing with ambiguity. If, if you know the required, so if, if a technology person comes up and asks a researcher for the requirement for the IT for their work, you know, you've got to scratch your head a little bit because if you know the requirements, it means you know the answer, which means it's not research, right? So you get this sort of, yeah, there's this intrinsic ambiguity that exists when you're dealing with research. And I would say that ambiguity exists also if you're trying to innovate and win fast, right? Trying to, you know, be innovative. It's the same sort of thing. And we sort of noted that there are two types of people in this world. Those that deal with ambiguity, the couple that can deal with ambiguity, so they're rounded, say, and those that can't, we've just squared, you know, and you'd be very quick to try and work out which one's which. And it's not that one is worse than the other, but all team building things, I think, uh, Gabe, you and I played pretty elite sport. I think you need a team and they will all need to be different. We talk about business teams having group of six and having different character types and, you know, diversity. Yeah. Uh, you, you need both in, in uh, so I, I don't know it's about like necessarily, so it is about identifying and understanding and cybersecurity tends to be squared people. It is a, it, it is about traditionally is about putting in control to regulate and create a wall, you know, but you can see from the stuff we talked about today that with, you know, with chat GDP, with quantum and all these things. Everything we're talking about, yeah, quantum, it's not about the one answer. It's about this ensemble, everything below the line, right? And you have to be comfortable with the idea that it's not black and white, the answer necessarily. Yeah, and so absolutely. Seeing, you know, yeah, so I think we see this in, in, you know, in, in, in how uh, people, uh, executives are dealing with the cybersecurity. And it depends where they're at. I mean, if they're still in the emergency stop all gaps phase, you know, that is much more box thinking, you know? For those who are sort of stepping into the next phase and wondering how to sustain the ability for a longer period of time, you need to uh, meld in with the rest of the business a bit, you know, that goes both ways, right? Yeah. Are you square or round, Ben? Body shape uh, or mind? (laughs) (laughs) Mind, I think, I think that's maybe why, I don't know, this is going to sound a bit cocky, but why we're a bit unique in this space, Gabe, is because we're happy to be rounded and driven by curiosity and not just led towards the answer that's right in front. We're happy to take 15 different paths to get to multiple outcomes. Yeah. Very rare. I'd say so. Comfortable in the ambiguity. Yeah. 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 Maybe we need to go through and go through everyone that comes on the show from now on and sort of rate them as round or square and yes. see what happens. <laughs> Shall we give them a spectrum or just a black and white answer? Uh, they have to hexagon. Hexagon. Don't double decahedron. <laughs> Don't decahedron. <laughs> Too funny. Yeah. Amazing, Steve. Well, are there any any other questions that come to mind for you, Ben? No, I was just thinking about you two playing elite sport, and I just wrote to Gabe. I want a one employee of the month for the last six months in my home office. Does that count towards the championship? <laughs> <laughs> Between you and Steve, you've got four championships, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. It counts. It counts for sure. Well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us on on Dark Mode. Really appreciate your time. 2.0. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Ben, so long as you get dad of the month, that's the, that's the thing that matters, mate. I know. It's challenging sometimes. <laughs> Bluey's on the television half the time. I think the, the dad from Bluey wins. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks, Steve. No, I appreciate your time. It's been amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe to our YouTube channel or leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next episode of Dark Mode.